A young woman goes to a local festival at a lake with her best friend. However, two days later, she would be found dead in the water by two local fishermen. Police quickly determined the death was accidental. But many experts, and even some of the police officers involved in the investigation, strongly question the conclusion reached. Was this woman really murdered? And if so, by whom? The answer to these questions may surprise you. Welcome, welcome, welcome into the greatest podcast about bad things ever, Killing Us and Hidden. I'm your deliciously average host, Brad. I kind of like to think of myself as the best generic store brand instant mashed potatoes of the podcasting world. Yeah, tasty. Hope all's well in your world. I've, good God, I've just had every hole in my head infected with something recently. There's even a chance I have to have tubes inserted into my ears like a toddler. And when my wife heard this, her reaction was to bust out laughing and ask if they would have to do the surgery at the children's hospital. So you see the loving support I received from my family. I thought you would enjoy that. Um, today's tale, you're going to hate. I promise you that. It put me in a tizzy. I almost said a few naughty words during the course of this episode. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to Nikki Young. She's the host of Serial Napper, that podcast. And she wrote an article on this case that really kind of made the structure of my script and probably accounts for over half the material I have in here. So. Uh, you know, give her podcast a shot if you're looking for something new to listen to. And, you know, just I, I like supporting people who are willing to go out there and do some work. And so, yay, Nikki. All right. Well, we're going to do a, a cliff dive into this kind of unbelievable story. You ready? Oh, too bad. We're starting. Our story this week takes place in 2015. The subject is a young woman by the name of Lauren A.G. She was an outgoing, funny, 21-year-old college student living in Nashville, Tennessee. By the by, if you've never been to Nashville, you really are missing out. It's one of the funnest cities I've ever been to. Uh, but back to Lauren. She was studying criminal science. She had a boyfriend that she was head over heels for. In fact, she told her closest friends that she thought he was the one. And she had a talent as a dancer. Like, she was just ridiculously good at dancing. Not like me, but like real talent. I, like, to the degree that she would get phone calls from producers to come appear in... TV commercials and music videos and things like that. Like she wouldn't even put herself out there and network or whatnot. She was just known in the area as being a dancer that was available for hire. Um, and unfairly, you know, she's smart. She's got this talent. She's likable. She's bubbly and all that. And she's pretty too. 
So, you know, I guess there are Laurens in life and there are Brads. So after school it out for the summer, uh, Lauren made plans with her friend Hannah to attend this three-day festival in Smithsville, Tennessee, which is about 60 miles east-southeast from Nashville, at least as the crow flies. And this festival is known as Wakefest. And it's a pretty big event designed to promote... Any guesses? I guess I got it totally wrong. It's designed to promote wakeboarding. Since this isn't a, a you know an event that requires water, uh, the festival is on a lake and focused on the water. And because it's on a lake, kind of in a rural part of Tennessee, this isn't somewhere where you go and book a hotel and all that. There's not really any true accommodations. You either have a houseboat, which most, you know, college students don't have. You rent one of the few cabins in the area, which I'm sure increase in cost by about 4,000% during this event. Or you go camping. So guess what the college student chooses to do? Now, when Lauren told her mom she was going, and her mom's name's Sherry, by the way. When Lauren told her mom she was going, um... Her knee-jerk reaction was, no, I don't want you going. This feels bad. And it, it, you know, it wasn't based in any logic. She couldn't point to anything and say, you can't go because of X. It was just, you know, the mom's spider sense going off. But Lauren kind of talked her into it and said, look, I'm going with Hannah. I've got lots of other friends that are going. I doubt I will ever be alone during this entire festival. And, you know, it's just a chance for us to get together and have fun and be a kid and all that. So, you know, of course, in the, in the end, since she couldn't point to anything, mom agreed to let her go. But she did it with this stabbing feeling in the back of her brain that, that she was making a mistake. Now, part of her reluctance to be excited about Lauren going on this trip was because of Hannah. Though these two girls had been lifelong friends, mom had noticed that Hannah had this pretty unlikable tendency to put Lauren on the back burner whenever Hannah had a new boyfriend. She kind of thought that to Hannah, Lauren was a friend of convenience. She was not a ride-or-die chick, you know? And, you know, her mom said in interviews that Lauren told me they were staying in a cabin, which made me feel a lot safer. But as I've already suggested, that was what I will graciously term a less than accurate representation of the true accommodations. Now, there were some sources that suggested that Lauren legitimately thought Hannah had got a cabin, but we don't know. And it seems like from what I can tell, again, the prices on a cabin would be ridiculous. And so almost everybody who went there was camping. So the two women arrive at Wakefest on Friday, July 4th, which is the first day of the festival, but they didn't arrive until after sunset. So, you know, kind of they missed all the organized activities for that day. But, you know, let's be honest. 
are they going there to watch wakeboarding or are they going there to party, right? So arriving at night, it's fine. Um, you know, you got to remember that this is one of those events where it's just essentially a mass collection of 20-something-year-olds in bathing suits. Getting drunk and hooking up was probably the goal of a sizable portion of the attendees, right? The wakeboarding was just some fun entertainment that was secondary to why they were there. But we do need to talk about this camping situation a little bit more. Now, they're not camping alone in the woods, right? I mean, this is a festival, so it's not like you're watching the beginning of Friday the 13th or something like that about to unfold. Um, but, you know, the girls had apparently decided that if they were going to camp, they wanted to find kind of an isolated place. And Hannah knew of the perfect spot, a cliff. Yes, there is a 90-foot cliff that overlooks this lake where they hold this festival. And from reading it and from looking at maps and all that, this seems like a really cool place to camp, but a massive pain in the butt because you can't walk up this cliff. The way it's... it's it's just too steep. There's so many trees and sharp rocks and things like that. I mean, I, I, if you were out hiking, if you were there to go hiking, you could do it. If you're there to go to a festival and get drunk and all that, no, you cannot do it. You know, flip-flops aren't going to carry you up this, this side of this cliff. So what people had done, it kind of become somewhat of a tradition uh, at Wake Fest is somebody always camped on the cliff. And so to help people get to the camping spot, what you, what you would have to do is canoe uh, across the lake to one of the sides of the cliff, and you would have to find a white rope that was hanging down. And then with this rope, there was just enough of an incline that you could walk slash pull yourself up 90 feet to the top of this cliff. And when you get there, the spot that's available for a campsite isn't huge. In fact, it has basically room for a two, maybe four person tent. And then it's got a hammock, a big oversized hammock. So, you know, Hannah and Lauren canoe across the lake, get there, carry all their crap up the side of this cliff <laughs> while using this little white rope. I, I, this just seems ridiculous to me, but I'm an old man. Um, and they get to the top and they find out they're not alone. Unbeknownst to Lauren, Hannah had invited her boyfriend, whose name was Aaron. and. Aaron had brought along a friend by the name of Christopher. Christopher was single. Christopher was looking to hook up. So, um, but let me describe this camp gear a little bit more because I feel like I'm not doing it justice. Uh, let's, you know, it, in a way, it's a very secure site because nobody's just going to stumble across you in the middle of the night. 
nobody's going to go up there and steal your things. You know, there's it, it would be a very safe environment for a group of friends to be in. But it's also a very dangerous environment because this is a cliff. There's no, you know, guardrails around it. OSHA hasn't been there to inspect it. Um, the bathroom, this is my favorite part. The bathroom is basically you, there is a particular branch to a particular tree that you would hold on to. And then you could stick your butt way out over the water and do your business. <laughs> and, oh, Lord. The things you do when you're young to have fun, right? Um, so, but I mean, there's a legitimate risk, of course, if you're drunk and you're up there and you stumble, you could fall 90 feet. And again, because the incline of the, the cliff you're not necessarily going to land in water. You could very well land on some rocks on the way down or whatnot. Now, one part I don't totally understand, even from reading descriptions and looking at maps, is there was one particular section of this campsite that led downhill that you could walk safely to some degree, and it would only be a 35-foot drop from the cliff but i don't know where those 55 feet go because if you look at a map it's like literally a bald spot on top of this cliff and then just thick forest and rocks but that's what they say so i've never been there i trust them um you know one chilling bit of evidence that happened on the way to this campsite Hannah and Lauren are paddling. It's nighttime. The only light they have is from the, you know, the campsites on the shore. And they're trying to get to this cliff, which obviously is remote to some degree. And so they're basically pad paddling in black water. They're having a hard time navigating. And then being young girls, they're recording a lot of this on their social medias and taking pictures and all that. And in one of the posts, Lauren chillingly, yet laughingly says, it's like we're going into a death, death trap. So, uh, all right, back to Hannah's friends being there. Again, this was a shock to Lauren. No discussion had been made about... Aaron showing up, and she had never even heard of Christopher. And so when they get up there, Hannah's like, well, me and my boyfriend. You like my impression? Me and my boyfriend. I got to sleep in the tent. You and Christopher get to sleep in the hammock. And Lauren's like, you, okay. Um, not wild about this. And like, you know, again, I can only relate to life anymore as a crotchety old man. I just can't imagine like having to share a hammock all night with somebody I've never met. You know, I, I just would hate to wake up nose deep in some stranger's armpit or something like that. Uh, you know, even if you're sending me like Selma Hayek or uh, Margot Robbie, I, I don't know. I, I want my space, you know, especially when I'm sleeping. My wife is the only exception. Sometimes my kids, if they're really sick and, you know, I feel like it's dangerous to not have them nearby, but 
you know, you know, maybe 22 year old Brad would give a different answer to this question, but 40 something year old Brad. Yeah. Uh, Not going to do that. And, And again, just to remind you, Christopher's there to hook up. Lauren's there to have fun. And Lauren's already found what she thinks is her future husband. So instantly there's just no <laughs> Lauren's like, no, 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 no. We are not touching, you know? Um, okay. Well, they go to sleep and they wake up Saturday morning and they're ready to party. They spend the day drinking, watching the wakeboard uh, demonstrations and competitions. They do some drinking you know, they swim in the lake, uh, they do a little bit of drinking, they uh, cliff dive from their temporary campsite there, um, and there was probably some drinking involved. Now, the the cliff diving, like I said, it was a little bit dangerous because you, like, had to jump to get out there, you know? And on top of that, not only did you have to worry about, you know, all these rocks sticking out from the cliffside, there was also a bunch of rocks that were underwater that some you could see and some you couldn't. And in fact, Lauren actually hit her head on one of the underwater rocks and knocked herself out during the cliff diving. Now, fortunately, someone was there. And I never found out who, who um, you know, saw her and probably heard her hit the rock. And instantly, you know, grabbed her and pulled her up and uh, was able to wake her up. But, you know, that's something you need to get checked out. But Lauren didn't want to go to the first aid tent because she didn't want to ruin the fun. And nobody kind of insisted that she go. Um, So we don't really know if she suffered like a concussion or some other brain injury, but you know, usually if you knock yourself out, there's a problem. All right, so you know, later that night, the foursome decided to do something a little different, and they headed over to the only bar that's on this lake. And Lauren, you know, she was super happy to arrive there because that's where she found all her other friends that were also at this festival. And she was hanging out more with them than with Hannah and Aaron and Christopher. Uh, One of her friends, a girl by the name of Cassie Franks, spent a good chunk of the evening with Lauren. And she said, like, you know, as they were drinking and all that and talking, Lauren started kind of confessing her. She wasn't happy. She wasn't having fun like she thought she would. She was peeved at Hannah for surprising her with Aaron and Christopher. And she didn't like the campsite they were at, um, even though, you know, it provided an awesome, awesome view of the lake. It's not where she felt comfortable sleeping. And she hated the sleeping arrangements, of course. And, you know, Cassie was like, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. You know, I wish I could help. But she didn't have any extra space in her tent, you know, and... This was kind of a common theme, like Cassie even helped her try to find another tent to stay in. But, you know, these are mostly college students. So if they've got a four person tent, they've actually probably realistically got like six people somewhat in the tent. You know, (laughs) maybe you sleep with your head out and your feet in the tent, although I'd probably prefer the other way. Uh, But anyway, but, you know, 
Lauren had fun with her friends while she could. And then the bar shuts down around 2 a.m. And that's when Lauren and her uh, roommates, we'll call them, had to leave to return to their suite at the top of the cliff. So the next morning, Hannah's the first one to wake up. And, you know, maybe she was on her way to the old pooping branch. But Hannah noticed that Lauren wasn't in the hammock. So she woke up Christopher and she's like, dude, where's Lauren? And he gives, depending on the source, he either says, I have no idea, or I remember her getting up in the middle of the night, but I was, you know, I was too drunk and sleepy. I don't know where she went. And it's not like she had snuck away during the middle of the night. I mean, her wallet's there, her cell phone's there, her flip-flops are there, and, you know, flip-flops, Big deal, because either you're going to cliff dive off and then spend the entire time in the water, or you're going to bring them with you so you can walk on land around this lake. And, you know, like, one of the guy, one of the two guys, I don't know which one, was never specified, like, he tried to be macho and didn't wear shoes the first night, and it just, the rocks there just sliced his soles to to ribbons it's apparently i mean these are apparently awfully sharp rocks so hannah you know then wakes up aaron and they kind of look around and then they just go on to the last day of Wakefest. they claimed that they believed lauren had gotten up early and headed down to the festival before them, you know, in part because she wasn't wild about hanging out with Christopher. They also thought that she was going to meet up with her friends that she was hanging out with at the bar the night before. So they claimed they didn't think it was odd that she left everything behind. That evening, late afternoon, evening-ish, the sun, you know, we still got sunlight. Uh, I think it was around five o'clock, roughly. There's two fishermen came by just to, you know, check out what was happening, watch some of the, the end of the event and all that. And they didn't want to get, you know, in the middle of everything. So they kind of hung out on the edge. And actually what they did is they went near the cliff. And part of the way this lake is shaped is the cliff juts out into the water from the land. And then if you're on the cliff looking out the water to your right, the lake can kind of makes has a kind of hidden cove type deal going on. It's I think looking at it from shore, you wouldn't notice that the water goes beyond the cliff. But when you're there, it does sneak around for a good bit to make kind of a a, a thin cove that goes back. I don't know. A couple hundred feet, maybe. So the fishermen decided that's where they were going to watch all this from because it's out of the way. Nobody's over there. And while they're hanging out there, one of the two fishermen notices something odd in the water. It's this like neon pink fabric. And so they go over to see what it was when they realize the pink fabric was actually shorts and those shorts were on a body a body that was floating face down. So naturally, fishermen immediately call the police. 
the police arrive, but they want to be discreet about this. You know, they don't want flashing lights and everything to not only to distract from the festival, but to invite unwanted attention and interlopers into what may be a crime scene. So, you know, they, they roll up, you know, quietly, they see the body and they're fishing the body quietly, discreetly out of the water. When all of a sudden a canoe starts approaching and one of the police officers, they had a boat out there. They intercept the canoe and say, hey, you can't come over here. We got something going on. You need to go back. Well, the canoe was being manned by Aaron. And he said, hey, I saw y'all over here and I'm concerned because one of our friends is missing. And so the police are like, okay, come with us. And they let Aaron get close and on shore they've got Lauren's body and he sees it and he says, that's our friend Lauren. Police, of course, are forced to call Lauren's mom. And her initial reaction, before you know the waves of grief even took her over, her initial reaction was, where are the people my daughter was staying with? Don't let them go. You need to talk to them. I mean, this is, at this point, her spider sense is saying, no, it's screaming, something's wrong, something bad has happened. You know, don't. Don't just ignore this. So, and the police said, we've got our friends. We're interviewing them right now. And so mama felt better about that. Now, let's kind of jump around a little bit here. Autopsy. Okay, when that was conducted, the autopsy indicated Lauren died from blunt force trauma to the head and drowning, which both detectives and the medical examiner chalked up to evidence of Lauren falling from the cliff in a tragic accident. Her blood alcohol was twice the legal limit. Now, let me go on a mini soapbox thing here. The legal limit in almost every state in the U.S. is 0.08% blood alcohol content. That is not a number that was picked scientifically it was a number that was picked politically i'm not you know a scientist i'm not an expert on this and i'm certainly not saying that drunk driving laws are stupid or anything like that what i'm saying is for my years in you know the criminal justice system i had the opportunity to talk to prosecutors law enforcement I even got a private tour of the headquarters where the state of Alabama coordinates all blood alcohol testing and the people who calibrate breathalyzers or whatever. I forget what the technical name for the machines are these days, but like the head honcho is in charge of all of this. And universally, they all tell me, yeah, for most people, 0.08, you're not impaired enough to be a dangerous driver. When you hit 0.1 or 0.12, depending on your tolerance, that's really 
when your reactions become slowed enough to make you dangerous. That's where you can start having blurry vision and things like that. So when you hear that somebody's blood alcohol is twice the legal limit, you're just shocked and appalled. They're up, which would put her at 0.16, certainly above what they've all, you know, all these experts have told me is above where you would start feeling impaired. And honestly, I think once you get above 0.15, that's when you start approaching the territory of being a sloppy drunk. Again, depending on your tolerance, you know, some people will be 0.18, you know, for heavy drinkers, they'll be even higher than that. So at, at 0.16, she's definitely impaired. Don't get me wrong. I just, everybody hears twice the legal limit. Oh my God, how how is she even walking? Well, you know what? If, if you've ever gotten drunk, you're probably at twice the legal limit. So, um, you know, again, not trying to say that it's cool to drink or drive, drink and drive after you've had some beers. Regardless of what I think, that's what the law is. You're going to get arrested. You're going to get DUI. You're going to have a bad time, right? But um, she was drunk, but I would think, I mean, that's drunk, but not, oh, my God. how? I mean, she climbed up the freaking 90-foot rope ladder course to get to her bed. So she had enough coordination to do that. Doesn't mean she couldn't have stumbled, you know, awkwardly anyway um now once this conclusion was reached that was the end of it for the police and what's frustrating is medical examiner jumped to this conclusion really really quickly like i've seen several people argue he did not conduct a thorough autopsy he Made no effort to swab her body or check under her fingernails for DNA, which is disappointing. No rape kit was used on Lauren's body, which surprises me and kind of makes my blood pressure go up. And what really ticks me off about this decision is the medical examiner said the reason he didn't do a rape kit is because Lauren had a tampon. Do you think a rapist cares about that? Oh, and shocker, she wasn't on her time of the month. Don't you think a doctor would notice that? Don't you think that should make the tampon more suspicious? All right. I'm, I, again, I get worked up on this one. Um, now, it's noteworthy, too, that while Lauren's cause of death is listed in part as drowning... There's no water in her lungs. Now, this doesn't mean it's impossible like, for her to have drowned. There have been instances where people have drowned, but the body absorbs the water out of the lungs somehow. But it's a, it's a pretty rare occurrence. You know, If you're going to find a body floating face down in a lake, you're going to find water in the lungs 99.999% of the time, is my understanding of it. 
Again, I say that without any science background. Um, but, you know, I wrapped up the case quickly. Hey, tragic accident. We're so sorry. But again, like I kind of hinted at in the introduction, not everybody was cool with this ruling. Um, you know, Lauren's mom certainly was like, y'all ain't doing your job. Get back in there and investigate. But a fellow by the name of Chris Yarchuk, uh, he was actually a police officer. And he was a police officer on the scene when they recovered the body. And he disagreed so much with this outcome that he called Lauren's mom to say, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, and I wish I could do something to help. But I am of the strong opinion that Lauren was the victim of foul play. So please keep pushing them to re-examine this case because they've told me to leave it alone. Uh, and here's a weird quinky dink. Chris, Officer Chris here, not only was one of the ones who found Lauren's body, he was at the bar the night before and actually briefly chatted with Lauren and found her to be very bubbly, very happy. He, he was there until 2 o'clock. He watched her leave. And he claims that, you know, she wasn't a stumbling drunk. She was walking with her friends under her own power and, you know, seemed to be more or less fine. When her, you know, when he was there at the scene and Lauren was pulled out of the water, Chris also stated that, you know, he saw the condition of her body and he noticed something very odd. There was a triangular impression on her stomach. And he said, this triangle matched perfectly the tips of the canoes that were available for rent there at Wakefest. And he said, you know, to him, that suggested that her body was at some point after death draped over the bow of the canoe, either head first or feet first into the water and her stomach laid across that point. But despite Chris kind of jumping up and down, his superiors told him, shut up, and this was never investigated. Another police officer, Ryan Melanson. He believed there was a rush to judgment in this case, too. He was there at the crime scene, but his job was to interview Hannah, Aaron, and Christopher. He was not involved in the body recovery, so he couldn't speak to that. But when he interviewed these three young men and women, he didn't buy what they were selling. Now, they all told the same story. They went to the bar, they left when it closed at two, went straight to their campsite, fell asleep, and found Lauren missing the next morning. Christopher insisted to Officer Ryan that he never felt Lauren get out of the hammock. And, and while their stories were consistent, like their body language was just crazy. In Officer Ryan's opinion, their demeanor was just off. Um, in fact, while speaking with Christopher, Christopher made 
this like odd attempt at a joke saying, well, if he had done it, he would grab Officer Ryan's gun and just go on the run right then. And it all added up to where Officer Ryan was like, we really need to look at this a little bit more. And again, his superiors shut him down. And so he too called Lauren's mom and said, hey, I have some real concerns about the quality of this investigation. I can't do anything else without losing my job, but I really encourage you to keep pushing for Lauren's case to be re-examined because I do not believe her death was an accident. So naturally, Lauren's mom hears this from not one but two police officers and decides to put on her old detective cap and began working the case on her own. Now, what she discovered, and of course she's just a mom. She, she, she doesn't have any training in this, but she has a lot of passion. She has a lot of time. She has a lot of desire. And so she does her own investigation to the best of her abilities. And she found a few things that are definitely sus. Um, a, they didn't leave the festival after Lauren's body was found. Hannah, Christopher, and Aaron stayed the night there and left later the next afternoon. She found that she found Christopher's Instagram page. And there is a photo of Christopher and Aaron with the caption, Best Weekend Ever. And this photo was taken the day after Lauren was found dead. Or it was posted, at least, the day after Lauren was found dead. Mom kept an eagle eye at her daughter's funeral. And she never saw Hannah show up. She never saw Christopher show up. She never saw Aaron show up. And at this point, she was like, this is, no, this has to be evidence that they've done something. And, you know, before I start meddling in things that I don't really understand and possibly screwing up a potential criminal investigation, I'm hiring a professional. So she hires a private investigator by the name of Sheila Wisconsky to assist. And Sheila's got a little bit of fame in the private investigation world because she was a basically a stay-at-home mom who found out that her best friend from college had died. And they chalked it up to an accident. She didn't believe it. And she was actually able on her own to kind of break the case open <laughs> and get a criminal investigation going and she had enough evidence that police were kind of able to make an instant arrest. And so, you know, she's, she's got some street cred, you know, maybe she wasn't an officer for 30 years, but she, she's got the instinct. So Sheila takes over the case for mom and instantly re begins reviewing everything she can. And she found some details that concerned her. And again, She's not. She doesn't have a science background. A lot of these concerns she has from that point of view were just based on her experiences in working on cases. But she found the autopsy notes to not match the autopsy photos very well. 
For example, there was an injury on Lauren's breast that Sheila said looked an awful lot like a human bite mark. No mention of this injury in the autopsy report. She noticed there were markings on Lauren's neck in the photos that seemed consistent with strangulation. No report of these in the autopsy report. There was also pretty intense bruising on Lauren's thighs. No mention of this on the autopsy report. And looking at all this together, you know, Sheila starts thinking, Lauren was sexually assaulted. Like, those bruises on her thighs are from being held down by somebody's knees. You know, so she's assaulted, and then she's strangled to death and left in the water to make it look like an accident. When she looked into the personnel that worked the case, she was stunned. I see that word used in several resources. Sheila was stunned to learn that the lead investigator was extremely inexperienced. The lead investigator, in fact, this was his very first homicide investigation. And he only took one paragraph's worth of notes. She learned that the 911 call, which all 911 calls are recorded and stored in case they ever need to be pulled out later, the 911 call reporting the finding of Lauren's body was missing. Sheriff's office couldn't find it anywhere. It misfiled or something. She, Sheila also learned that nobody had gone up to the campsite. In fact, nobody from the sheriff's office had collected Lauren's personal belongings. Hannah didn't collect them either. We know Aaron and Christopher aren't going to. So apparently, maybe to this day, her cell phone and whatnot are still up there. I'm sure they're not. But based on what the police did, yeah, they very well could still be there. Uh, Sheila managed to talk Hannah into sitting down with her and doing an interview, which she videotaped. And... In the middle of this interview, Hannah receives a phone call, and it's from Aaron. And while the videotaped interview shows, you know, Hannah stopping to take a phone call, it doesn't pick up the audio of what Aaron is saying on the other line. However, Sheila insists, since she was sitting pretty close to Hannah during this interview, she could hear Aaron. And when Aaron found out what was going on, he kind of aggressively told Hannah, stick with the story. Hmm. So, Mom does a good job of kicking up dust, hanging a lantern on this case, such to the point that the U.S. News Program 2020 gets interested in this case. And so they decide to do a segment for their weekly show on Lauren's death. And in fact, Officer Ryan was willing to participate 
in the story. And they decided to conduct a test. They went up to the cliff where the campground was, and 2020 had a special mannequin made that matched Lauren's height and weight exactly, or close enough. Um, and with Officer Ryan's help, they attempted to recreate Lauren's fall in a manner that was consistent with the official police story on how Lauren died. And because, again, the, the slopes coming out from the cliff you know, went outward instead of coming inward, every time they tried to drop the mannequin off the side of the cliff, it would roll. And almost every time it would get stuck before it could reach water. Now, obviously, this isn't a scientific test. There's not much you can really gather from it other than to say they weren't able to recreate the fall. But it's noteworthy in that on this national news program, they've raised this question of how could this be an accident and state authorities or local law enforcement or anyone with a badge in this case never took the time to try to conduct a similar test. In fact, law enforcement has been so stubborn about this case and so insistent that they got it right. There was nothing wrong here. Lauren's mom met with an attorney and decided to file a wrongful death lawsuit against Hannah, Aaron, and Christopher. Her purpose wasn't to get millions from them. She thought that, you know, again, with attorney's advice, this would be a great way to get some evidence, you know, under oath, submitted to the court as part of the public record to put pressure on the police department. And so during the course of the discovery proceedings, they did lots of depositions, they hired experts and all this stuff, and here's some of the interesting things that they came up with. There, um, Lauren's mom's attorney was able to introduce evidence through a deposition that Aaron and his boyfriend had a long history of being violent and abusive in relationships. He was very controlling. He was very physical. And in fact, he had dated Casey, Lauren's friend that she hung out with at the bar. And when Aaron just saw Casey was there, he had to be physically restrained from going over and assaulting her. And Casey said he did this regularly. Like she could not be in the same area he was without running the risk of getting a black eye. Mom also hired an expert, a hydrologist, who studied the waters and the currents and things like that. And it was his opinion that it would have been impossible, not unlikely, but impossible for Lauren's body to be found where it was based on the currents of the water if she had fallen from the cliff. He was of the opinion the only way she could have gotten there 
was to have drowned in that exact spot or for her body to have been placed there. Mom was also able to, or at least her attorney was able to depose the lead investigator. All right. This, this just blows my mind. Um, he admits in his deposition that this was his first homicide investigation. He admits under oath that he had never received any formal investigative training before Lauren's case came on his desk. He admits that he failed to interview the fisherman who found the body. He admits that he failed to make any effort to interview any of the occupants of the nearby houseboats who may have been a, who would have been in a position to see anything. And he admits that he failed to check for any evidence in the rocks, the cliffs, the campsites, or in the surrounding water. So basically, go down to your local hardware store, grab the youngest looking employee there, and ask him or her to come investigate a homicide, and you'll probably get results that are consistent with what this detective did. I mean, it is painfully obvious. The, the sheriff's office appointed this kid to be a detective and then left him to stumble around in the dark. A retired detective turned criminal investigative consultant testified or was deposed and gave testimony and stated that he was concerned that Lauren's injuries did not match the manner of death discover you know offered by the medical examiner he said if she fell down these cliffs then any part of her body that was not covered by clothing would have scrapes scratches and bruising on it and none of the injuries she had seemed consistent with that there were injuries on her back again not in the autopsy report but from the photos and he said from looking at the injuries on her back, they were consistent with the types of lacerations you would get if you were dragging somebody by their arms or their feet through the woods. Ugh. I just need a moment. I'm sorry. Um, ultimately, the civil case would end up being dismissed because at no point could mom ever introduce any evidence that tied Hannah or Christopher, or Aaron, to Lauren's death, which obviously is a big part of suing somebody for causing someone's death. But they got all this evidence under oath that supported the her mom's theory that, no, this was not an accident. And the police officers, the sheriff's department, refused to acknowledge it. Uh, my understanding is that today Hannah and Aaron are now married and they absolutely refuse to talk about Lauren or her death. Mom continues to pester police to open up this case, re-examine it. But, you know, they've remained steadfast that Lauren's death was an accident and there's no evidence supporting foul play. Ugh. 
good lord, does this case not stink to high heaven? Of course, you know, I don't have direct access to any of the documents we've talked about. But why do the police not want to look at this case again? I mean, even if it's just to satisfy mom, even if it's just to satisfy the community, even if it's just so they can say, hey, some interesting points were raised, and we do need to look at this again because we care about the citizens of our county and the state of Tennessee. Why would they not do that? You know, I understand there's always an allocation of resources issue. Police are always underfunded or the ones that are funded well like to waste money on toys, my opinion. Um, but, you know, this is not like a kid was arrested for selling weed or somebody's bicycle was stolen. A woman lost her life. And kid, how can you be so arrogant? That you just won't take the time to say, let me see if an error was made. You know, call in somebody from another department if you're that shorthanded and say, hey, will you kind of audit us? Will you just look to see if you have any questions? And, you know, if, you know, this detective spends three or four hours looking through the case, finally comes back and says, no, y'all did everything right. I'm cool with it. Okay, then you've got something but ah in fact i'm gonna do this i don't think i've ever done this on this podcast but i'm gonna do this because i'm so annoyed at this case the best way to get police to re-examine a case is to be a squeaky wheel like mom's being but either you gotta be a super rich or super powerful squeaky wheel or there has to be lots of little squeaky wheels who make it to where the sheriff says, God, I want this to stop. Let's just do it to make these people shut up. So you want to be a squeaky wheel? You want to help mom out here? You need to talk to the DeKalb County Sheriff's Department in Tennessee. You want their phone number? I got it for you. Here it is. Area code 615-597. 4935. I'll even repeat it in case you're trying to write it down. 615-597-4935. What if you don't want to call? What if you want to send a letter? I got their address for you. Go, Brett. It's the DeKalb County Sheriff's Department. DeKalb is spelled D-E-K-A-L-B. And their address is 100 Public Square in Smithville, Tennessee, zip code 37166. And again, I'll repeat it. The DeKalb County Sheriff's Department, 100 Public Square, Smithville, Tennessee, 37166. You don't need to say anything special. Okay, there's not like some magic phrase you have to use. It's just putting the pressure on them to re-examine it. And so you can just say, hey, I heard about Lauren Agee's case recently. It seems really sus. Can you please explain to me why y'all refuse to re-examine it? 
they won't write you back. They won't answer the question. But, you know, you'll make a little bit of a wave. And if enough waves are made, maybe it'll get big enough to get people's attentions. You know, gosh, if just a couple hundred of y'all could do that, it would make a huge difference. So um, as you've, you know, probably figured out by now, I'm on team foul play with this one. There's, you know, too many people raised too many questions. I mean, when you've got your own police officer saying, hey, we've screwed up, that that needs to be looked into, in my opinion. Plus, I don't have any animosity towards them, but I don't really trust Detective Doogie Hauser to have gotten everything right in his first case when he's ever been trained to do this type of work. I mean, we've already been through a laundry list of problems identified in his investigation. I mean, when when the decision-making process involves someone saying, oh, shucks, we can't do a rape kit because she has some cotton in her naughty bits, what level of sophistication are we really dealing with? I mean, this makes the entire police force look like they were randomly selected from the most rural and uneducated portions of the county. Honestly. And look, I'm... I'm I'm saying that with a broad brush. We we had two officers speak up and say something's wrong. God knows how many others were privately saying something's wrong. But it, it gives that impression to everybody that wears the badge in that county, you know? And again, I always stress, I, I'm just a criminal defense attorney. I'm not qualified to speak to things like injuries or, you know, hear how the current of a lake would move a body. But I do have experience with people who, you know, are in criminal situations. And so I kind of feel like I can speak to that a little bit. And, you know, if your best friend dies on a trip, most people in the trip, because it's hard to have fun after you've just learned that your dead, your best friend's dead body has been drug out of the water, right? That's that, 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 you know, that's not normal behavior. Them staying for another 24 hours to party and all that. Not, not normal behavior. Uh, Aaron showing up at the crime scene. <laughs> really? No, that, that's a red flag right there. Again, this is kind of a hidden cope. You don't see it unless you're up on it. So somebody out in the lake enjoying the show would look over and, okay, maybe they saw people gathered around the edge of this, the, the water here. But why would you be looking over there at all if the police are being discreet about it? What would make you think when you're multiple hundreds of feet away from the event that, hey, I need to go over there and I need to talk to those police about my missing friend instead of the police that are working security at this event that are all around me. Um, you know, this just strikes me as a man trying to insert himself into a situation with the primary purpose of deflecting any attention from himself. You know, the, I'm sure the thinking was, well, a guilty man wouldn't come back to the scene of the crime when, you know, the evidence says, yeah, yeah, they would, and they do it a lot. 
Christopher and his little joke about going on the run. Ugh. That's something so many guilty people do in an effort to try to deflect attention from them. Now, why would I be making jokes if I'm the one that killed somebody? Uh, you know, from my experience, and in my opinion, joking to a police officer about committing a crime that you're being questioned about is an admission that you committed the crime. Okay? And for most of the detectives I've talked to, they have the same opinion. I don't know what's different in DeKalb County, Tennessee. Uh, and, you know, how can you look... Hannah not going to Lauren's funeral? These are lifelong friends, and Hannah doesn't go to her funeral? You can't... You cannot look at that and say it's not suspicious. Okay? Now, look. Yeah, you can grieve and all that. And, I mean, if, there are certainly situations where the loss of a loved one is such an enormous impact that the idea of going to the funeral is overwhelming. And I understand that. From what we know about Lauren and Hannah's relationship, however, like I, like I said at the beginning, Hannah was not a ride-or-die friend. They had grown up together. They were friends together. And there's no evidence that Hannah was shot by Lauren's death. There's no evidence of her falling apart at the festival, right? No. She stayed another day and partied. So, even just her showing up, sitting in the back of the funeral home or the church or wherever the services were held, sit in the back row, and then leave when the service is over, that can be explained away so easily. You know? It's like, that was my friend. And she's dead. And, you know, at the festival, I was kind of in a state of shock. But as I got home, it really kind of sunk in. And, yeah, it's hard for me. But I had to be there to say goodbye to Lauren. But I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't have it in me to, you know have people comfort me or anything like that. Okay, that's not unusual. People react to grief in all sorts of ways. But, you know, partying about, partying right after it happens and then ignoring the funeral, never once called Lauren's family, never once did anything to show support for what Lauren's family was going through. Um, she just, she just didn't care. Or that's what the evidence suggests to me. And imagine that the police conducted a real investigation and your dumb butt has put up an Instagram post stating best weekend 
ever less than 24 hours after your bunkmate has died. Oh. This is so infuriating because this is a simple case. From the evidence I know of, and again, I do not know what is in police uh, custody. I don't know what was said during interviews. I'm going purely off of what's been reported in the media. But the evidence that is out there screams homicide and the finger points in one direction, in my opinion. Here's another weird fact that I didn't get into in the meat of the story. There are some reports that Lauren was found wearing clothes that were not hers when she was pulled out of the water. And some claim it appeared as if somebody tried to dress a, a, a dead body. For example, her bra straps were twisted in multiple ways, multiple times. The Of the three hooks on the back of the bra, only the top one was fastened. Despite having allegedly taken a tumble down this cliff, there's no tears in any of the clothing. There's no streaks of dirt or mud. And most damning of all, Lauren's mom says, I've never seen these clothes, including the bra, including the, you know, undergarments. These was all new clothing to me. During one of the interviews police conducted with the threesome, Hannah apparently had a hard time keeping her story straight. In one version I've read, Lauren apparently said, or uh, Hannah apparently said, Lauren had told her she was going to wake up early and meet up with an old boyfriend or some other older man she was interested in. But we know Lauren was kind of stuck with this one fellow back home. And Hannah, you know, later changes her story to, well, we don't know, but we thought she was going to meet up with her friends from the bar the night before. So we've gone from, oh, yeah, she went to hit, hook up with an old boyfriend to, oh, she was just going to meet some friends. Maybe. I don't know. Some festival goers told reporters that investigated this case that the night slash morning of Lauren's death, they noticed there was a campfire up on the cliff that was very bright but short-lived. And this has led some internet sleuths to reach the conclusion that evidence was being burned or destroyed in some manner. Again, police never went up there, so we don't know if a campfire was even burning. And if so, if there were any ashes or remains. Mm. Some claim that they, at the bar particularly, there were several people who said Lauren was actively looking for 
a way to get home. That she was really upset with Hannah and Aaron and Christopher because there apparently was this expectation that Christopher was going to get him some from Lauren. And Lauren had told these folks that she had kind of become like the butt of all the jokes of the little group that Hannah was almost being abusive towards her. One of Lauren's friends named Jade confirmed that she, that she had a text conversation with Lauren that night. And Lauren said in these text messages, she was having no fun because of Hannah, Aaron, and Christopher. She even asked Jade to come pick her up. But Jade said, honey, it, it's after midnight. I don't know where this place is. It's a long drive for me. I don't think, you know, I'm scared I would fall asleep on the way there. I'll be happy to come pick you up tomorrow, but I can't do it this late at night. There is one report ever investigated, so we don't know how accurate it is. That there was a family who was camping in the area. They weren't there for the festival. They just, just this was where they liked to go camping. And this family claims that they were camping over near that cove, that hidden cove I keep talking about. And around midnight, they heard somebody pull themselves out of the water and start throwing up. And when the dad went to investigate, he found a fellow that looked like Aaron there who said that his buddies dared him to swim from the cliff to the cove and he was too drunk and he shouldn't have done that. Um, honestly, I have to question this report. I don't think this is accurate because all other evidence all other, you know, statements in the media from people who are there, even surveillance footage shows the foursome were at that bar until closing time. And so, you know, maybe the family got the time wrong, but Aaron was not pulling himself out of the water at midnight. Another interesting tidbit. There's lots when when stories started popping up that were questioning what the police were doing or not doing in this case, a lot of comments were being left on these articles from anonymous friends of Lauren saying, no, y'all don't know this girl. You know, she was of questionable morals. She, you know was exceptionally drunk. Her friends were trying to take care of her, but she was being aggressive. And her falling down the off the cliff makes a lot more sense. Well, the private investigator, our friend Sheila there, noticed these comments were popping up while she was working on this case. And she managed to be able to trace the IP address of several of these comments. And of every single one that she could trace, it led to either Hannah or Aaron's 
IP address to their location. Um, I, I just, I cannot believe, I cannot believe that police would look at this and not consider it a murder. Uh, I, I mean, if I were forced to put together a theory, and I've kind of hinted at it throughout, Aaron promised Christopher, hey, we got a girl for you. Hannah volunteered Lauren, promising that she would have sex with Christopher. The animosity between Lauren and the rest of the group developed all because Lauren wasn't interested in Christopher at all. She was devoted to her boyfriend, and it was making Hannah look bad, and it was upsetting Aaron, who seems to have a real anger issue. And then Christopher is just ticked because he's sleeping next to this really pretty girl who won't do anything with him. The animosity, you know, continues to build over the weekend. And by the time they get to the bar, Lauren is done with this whole situation. She's ticked and she'll do anything to get out of there. You know, she wants a ride back home. She wants another place to sleep whatever but you know not being able to find something that will pull her out of where she's staying she says fine forget it i can do one more night she returns to what she probably viewed as her clifftop prison and you know christopher probably tries to make another move lauren pitches a fit hannah starts fussing at lauren Aaron starts yelling at Lauren and things escalate before Aaron and Christopher force Lauren to have sex with Christopher. Lauren probably fights back, but can't hold off the two men. You know, after being abused, Lauren's either kind of broken or raising hell about going to the police. Drunk panicking one of the two men decide that they're up poop creek without a paddle and the only way out of this is to make sure lauren can't tell anyone leading to her being strangled hannah in an effort to help cover up the rape inserts the tampon into lauren and then replaces all of Lauren's clothing to remove any potential DNA or any evidence that had it had been ripped with her own clothing. And then I think the men probably tossed Lauren off the short side of the cliff. Because it would seem like, from what I understand, that would be the easiest area to make sure you didn't get tumbled up and all the the brushes and whatnot that grow on the side of the cliff. But it's also right there on the side next to that little magical mystery cove. Um, so they throw Lauren's body off of this the short side of the cliff. Aaron climb or you know jumps down, climbs down to the canoe, puts Lauren's body in there, probably pretty awkwardly, 
In fact, Christopher may have to be there too to account for her being in the canoe because I think her dead weight would unbalance the canoe. Uh, you'd probably need someone sitting in the back and someone sitting in the middle to offset, you know, the 105 pounds of dead weight Lauren was at the front of the canoe. Then they, uh, you know, Aaron or Aaron and Christopher then decide to leave Lauren's body at the back of this hidden cove where no one will just stumble upon it. Then they spend the rest of the night coming up with a story. They want to seem cool the next day, not draw any attention. So they just go about their normal routine, partying, having fun, making it seem like everything's fine. They try to make normal social media posts. But, you know, Christopher got a little too cool with his best weekend ever post. And then the three continued to support them each other while the police were investigating this and were exceptionally happy to see that no criminal investigation was really ever opened. Um, you know, whatever happened, assuming this was a murder, a homicide of some sort, um, this was an amateur job. This was not done by somebody who was thinking clearly, who had it planned out, this was, you know, the traditional crime of passion with the, oh, crap, how do I fix this now? There's just, there's just so many spots where this young detective screwed up. There's so many, uh, there's so, there's just this overabundance of arrogance from police leadership. They just. This was an accident, you know, and they weren't going to move from that. Probably partially motivated by the idea of who wants to start a murder investigation in the middle of this festival. And who wants to do anything to endanger this festival moving from this rural little lake? Um, you know, it's probably very important to the county to have hundreds upon hundreds of young folks come in every year, spend money, you know, inject that, that cash into the local economy. So why, why screw that up? Right. Yeah. Cause that's what matters in this world. Sadly. All right. Uh, I'm done with this one. I'm just done with it. Um, so here's the palate cleanser. <laughs> Um, all right. My sister used to live on a beautiful lake that was full of ducks. However, she ended up moving when she got fed up with all the bills. Boom! I pulled a lake joke. They said it wasn't possible, but I made it happen. Who doesn't love a good lake joke? All right. Uh, I'm still recovering, so I'm quite tired from doing this. And uh, so I'm going to end it here. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you all have a wonderful week. And I will see you next week. So y'all be good. Be loving to each other. Please don't go to festivals and uh, kill your best friend, okay? Y'all be good. 
Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.